So uh, I'm a Leo, but I have a lot of Taurus in my chart. So we've got a lot of Earth up on the stage. Um, it's amazing to me how, how well our talks have flowed into each other because the main focus of my contribution is, is really separating myself from the object. <coughs> so I looked at the original proposed questions and I said like, do I inform my life or my work like by the definition of art or by the definition of activist, artist or activist? And I really don't. Um, I really am inspired by many things and a lot of them are not art. And a lot of the things that are meaningful to me are not art and are not activism. And I don't really separate it when I'm considering what's motivating me and, and what's pulling me in what direction. And I also, yesterday we got together to discuss the panel and we were looking at Stefan's picture of the helicopter over and I started thinking about myself at that time in 2001, which is when this picture was taken. Um, so that's 15 years ago. And I had just moved to Montreal. And uh, I really, like literally when I moved here, we drove down Sherbrooke Street to the residences at Concordia. And I saw people talking to each other and I thought, how the fuck am I gonna make a friend? Like, how am I gonna talk to someone on the street? And how are we gonna go to the park? Like I was really, I felt really isolated and like baffled by just that idea. Um, and uh, because of the way Concordia mobilized, there was 80 buses that left for Concordia to the FTA strike. But leading up to that, there was eight months of trainings. So there was all kinds of opportunities for me to go. I met Starhawk and participate in these things that were really laid out for people to participate. So uh, I volunteered a lot and did a lot of collaborative art projects that I frankly didn't understand. Like, I was just like, I'm participating. <laughs> this is a barcode, you know, it means something. But I did not know what it meant. But it doesn't, it didn't even matter because I really felt swept up in this, uh, this like collective movement that was really quite powerful. Um, and honestly, the actual attending the FTA was very existential for me. Like, all this collective movement ending up to just like sort of standing and being like, where do we go and what do we, do? you know? <coughs> and I heard about affinity groups, but I was like, I'm not in an affinity group. <laughs> I'm not at the spokes council, I don't, you know. Um, and then the other thing that was happening for me at that time was that I was like uh, looking for queer community. And I don't, honestly, I'd really love to know like why the word community is attached to the word queer in a lot of times. Or like, I was like, how do I have a girlfriend? Where do I go? <laughs> How does it work? Um, and, you know, you find those people, but what I found with, like, if I'm really honest, what I found uh, initially is that I had to really pretend that I knew more about my queerness than I did. And I had to really fake it. And so what that meant was, like, I really had to be inauthentic to be accepted. Uh, I had to pretend I knew more about sex. I had to pretend I knew more about culture. I had to pretend I knew more about Ani DeFranco. Like, the cultural signifiers and my own life, I had to construct an identity to be accepted. And so I made zines where I like literally narrated my life in a way that it wasn't true, you know? <clears throat> and you, you soon hit a wall if you have to be dishonest to be accepted. Like it's, it's you, you can't go very deep if you, if you can't be yourself. Um, so 
we can go to the next slide. One person that really changed my life a lot and continues to is James Baldwin. Um, and he, he was a black writer, um, died in, 80, in the 80s, and he writes a lot about love in a really deep way. And um, he wrote a really important text called Giovanni's Room. And uh, there's, a, there's like gay love in this book. And so um, in this book that I brought, that's really cool, it's four interviews with James Baldwin. There's a white gay magazine writer who says like, <clears throat> so you're gay, right? <laughs> and he's like, that role isn't important to me. It's not interesting. What's important to me is truth telling in the way that we love each other. And in the way that we love each other is much more complicated than a signifying word. And then, look, <laughs> it was amazing. I was looking for an exact quote, but it's one of those things where it's like more all throughout. The white guy literally says like, the, us white gay people, we look to black people to save us. <laughs> and he was like, don't romanticize black people. <laughs> like, leave us alone. But it was just an interesting, very honest moment where I was like, wow, racism so, like, it's amazing. It's amazing <laughs> what it does. Um, and so, yeah, so James Baldwin's work continues to, like, really question, it allows me to really question, like, what is truth-telling beyond identity politics? And what does it mean for me to love my family? And what does it mean for me to love uh, my friends? And in his novels and his essays, he really does that. The other thing he does really well is he asks about what it means to be American and what it means to be black in America and the psychological damage and social damage that that causes, which is really important work, really important work. So we can go to the next. So after I graduated, I moved to, to Montreal to go to art school. And uh, after I graduated, I said, fuck high art. It was, it's so depressing. And like sort of message I got from Concordia because my department wasn't, like it was the studio art department. So it, although Concordia was kind of radical at the time, the studio department wasn't. And I was like, I need a rich philanthropist to fund me which I'm not interested in, or like what am I doing? Like I just felt really lost. So I started a radio show called These Things That People Make, and it was a radio show that interviewed anybody that made something, like literally anything that wasn't fine art. Because I found that people who make things that aren't fine art aren't pretentious about the thing they do, and they're often quite literal about it, you know? Um, so I interviewed my aunt who makes beer, and I interviewed, um, the, the Torrington Gopher Hole Museum, which I encourage everyone to go to. It's in Torrington, Alberta. And uh, it's, a it's probably the half the size of this room. And there's 30 dioramas all representing the town of Torrington. And they're taxidermy gophers wearing homemade outfits in different scenes. <coughs> yeah. So here they are playing in a band. And like, you know, I'm a bit of, I'm like, I'm a bit of a, I don't know a little bit of an asshole or like whatever. I call and I'm like, so what's happening in the museum, you know? And the woman, is, the director was like, well, there are gophers. And I was like, yeah, you know? And she, she just like totally straightforward described the whole thing. And I thought like, what was I think, like I was thinking it was slightly ironic or I was thinking, you know, like whatever. There was some subtext and it's really straightforward. It is what it is. And there's something to me incredibly important about that. <clears throat> and in the work that you guys are describing today too, it's the message is clear and that's part of the point. And I think part of the problem with the idea of fine art is that it always has to obscure a message. 
and that to figure it out, you have to know the secret code to get the language. And, and so to me, this project is like, it's an incredible community building project. It's not perfect by any means, but one funny anecdote about it is that the PETA people got really in, incensed and people f internationally like were like on it. We're like, this is cruelty to animals and all these sorts of things. And so they printed out all of those things and they put them in a binder and they're on display at the front. And they said they really boosted our appeal. And the other thing is just that like a gopher is like a rat in Alberta. <laughs> and, and so like people are bringing their dead, uh, their dead gophers to the museum and they're taxiderming them with a specific guy named Dale. And like, so, so like they were like, like these gophers are destroying our fields and they're destroying our agricultural practice. And like, just to say it's cruelty to animals is, is, is like, you don't really know what you're talking about in this context. So that's, that's them. That, yeah, so this is Debbie Power. She's somebody else I interviewed for my radio show. And this is the Happy Face Museum in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. And uh, Debbie Power, this circle in the middle, that's her Happy Face costume. And she puts it on and is in parades uh, in Halifax. And another person who's like, I wanted to be happy. And I w she said, I want to be happy and I wanted to make it real. And this was her answer. And uh, it's, it's like a small room filled with happy faces and it's like really incredible. It's really incredible. Uh, and just somebody else, you know, who's just living her truth. You know, like this is, she's also like, this is what she wanted to do. She's also very Christian. <clears throat> so she was like, I prayed to God and t asked him to help me be happy and this is what happened, you know? <laughs> um, and then another project that I'm working on in a long-term way is my relationship to my family. And uh, these are my aunts. The one closest to me in the picture is my blood-related aunt and the, next, the one next to her is her partner. And those are their three German shepherds. And they homestead in the Adirondack Mountains. Uh, and uh, a, a few years ago, I had an idea to make a documentary project with them. And it's been really interesting and telling to me the sort of journey that my idea about the documentary has had. At first, I was like, I'll just document their lives because um, they really, they really, uh, their enthusiasm for life is incredibly infectious and they, they make their own everything, like beer, honey, yogurt, bread, they hunt, um, but they're also just like really hyper, like <laughs> they're just really living their lives, so it's, it's like quite amazing. And then I thought uh, I could do it about how like they're lesbians and I'm a lesbian, but uh, we're of different generations and what are the differences? But I s realized what I was doing also is that I was projecting my embarrassment of them into the movie, so I've then at a certain point it was like embarrassingly but true gonna be how about how like I was cooler than they were or something you know and to describe it in a crude way you know because I was looking at ways that they were like uh, oppressive and then I was like I have to look at the ways I'm oppressive if I'm gonna look at how they're oppressive and then I was like oh you know the language has just changed but nothing else has really changed so that's also interesting um, but now to me what's more interesting than the product is our relationship and um, and uh, it's been really, really interesting to just figure out different ways to be together and talk with them. So uh, this is somebody else who's been really influential to my 
life. His name is Samuel Delaney. He's a sci-fi writer. And um, he wrote this book called Times Square Red, Times Square Blue that chronicles the porn theaters in Times Square in New York City in the 70s and 80s. And he looks at the cross-class sexual contact between people. And he, for him, this is a place really where the most intense cross-class contact happens. And he also writes about um, be, uh, being in serious relationships with people who we typically perceive as like undateable in our society. So he, he, he dated and lived with people who were homeless for a long time. So just it was really important to me to read that like and made me think about who I don't think of as as, as human as us and how that is really problematic. So to talk about sexual love, being more inclusive was really profound for me. So I'd recommend that book. Um, Matilda Bernstein Sycamore is a, and a writer and editor who lives in San Francisco. And she did this great book called Why Are Faggots So Afraid of Faggots? And to me, it's like the best anthology I've ever read. And it's really hard to make an anthology that uh, holds together and is not really surface. And she encouraged the writers to go from the personal to the political or from the political to the personal. And always in that move, there's a contradiction. So it, it's really beautiful in that, that it just really shows honestly how people are in life. And uh, it was a great book. And this is C.A. Conrad. This is one of C.A.'s books here. And C.A. is a, a poet who was one of the first people that I read who's also included in that last anthology, uh, who writes about fat desire um, as a, a gay man and um, being a, a working class fat person. And I found it to be incredibly, it gave me a lot of hope to read it. And he also uses a lot of all caps sentences and I really love them. So I'd really recommend CA. And then uh, this is Milen St. Pierre. Milen uh, just opened uh, a plus size frippery in Montreal. And it's actually, it's on its second day at the roller derby today. And um, to me, it's, it's very important for everyone to be able to buy clothes and it's currently not possible. So uh, it's very important to me that she's doing this project and it's, um, it's, it's, she, I, I met with her to talk to her a little bit about it a while ago, and she talked about um, being at a No Lose conference. No Lose is a le like fat lesbian association in the states, and they set up a frippery there where people tried on clothes and share in clothes with each other, and just how profoundly moving that was for her. And it made me think about how fat people don't get to go into brand name stores and buy clothes, which means by virtue of that fact, fat people are isolated in their shop for clothes and it's really frustrating. Um, and so she's making this space as also a, a social space where people can do workshops, get together, hang out, and find clothes that fit them, that look good, that don't cost a ton of money. So I think that's a really exciting project. Oh yeah, so this, um, I do, a a blog collaboration with my friend Fatima Shabazz, who is incarcerated in California. She's a trans woman. And she sends me like five pieces a week and I can't even keep up with it. But she can't publish a blog from prison. So the only thing that I do is I, I post her work and I, I find images to go with it. But it's been really inspiring to me to work with someone who's so prolific. And 
it's interesting too because she has to sift through CNN to come up with a critical perspective and she does so like really well um, and we have and sometimes I send her articles and things but just to see someone working so passionately um, and also so patiently uh, has been really wonderful and I can give people that address later too. And this is me and my brother. Gregory might recognize us from this time. Uh, and I put this in because really to me, honestly, the most important work in my life has been with the closest people in my life and uh, coming to terms with the, the heartbreak of the challenges of, of the so-called queer community, but also the heartbreak of the challenges of my biological family that we all have in different ways. And so working with him to witness our family and to uh, grow within that has been really moving for me. And this is my aunts again. I just like them, they're so in love. <laughs> um, and then finally, I thought I'd talk about one project that I'm currently working on, which is a series of films. When, uh, when my grandmother was, uh, about a year before she died, she and I took this walk down the halls of her retirement home and she said, what are you gonna do this winter? And I said, I don't know, honestly. It's kind of amazing when a person's mind really starts to change how you can become more honest with them. My family is pretty uh, uptight and as her brain started to loosen up, I felt like I could just say anything to her. So I was like, no plans for the winter, no idea. And she said, you need to write a mystery novel and call it The Halls of Wickwire. And the Halls of Wickwire was the name of her retirement home. And she said, your great-grandfather worked in publishing. He's dead now, but I'll talk to him for you. <laughs> and I said, thanks. <laughs> um, and so I'm doing this series of short movies uh, with, with her as the main character, and really as a character. So I, I, I have been writing and drawing about her and me for about two years, and so now she's starting to become her own sort of fictional character holding her authentic self still intact. So I just did recently the first one called Roger and it's about uh, about a five, it's a two minute movie but it's basically about a five minute relationship between Roger who's on the right and my grandmother on the left. Um, and it's been interesting because, you know, to find the right form for the work you're doing, you know, it's been interesting to make movies because I was making these stories but they had, they were moving so slowly that it didn't feel like it could be a book and mostly I work in books. So, so I'm excited that I finally found the form that it should take. So that's all, <laughs> that's my talk. <top. laughs>